guys have a new pulpit. It looks very, very extravagant. Um, uh, it's good to see the Jita guys here. Um, some of you guys might remember me. I was at Myeongsongkyo many years ago, and we used to go to joint mission trips up to Walgut and Lightning Ridge. Uh, so I'm very familiar with Jita. Um, so for the E12 students, welcome. I know it's not easy uh, to kind of be the top dogs in your ministry, and then suddenly you're the babies in EM. Uh, but welcome. Uh, you're amongst brothers and sisters that love you and care for you very much. Uh, and I hope that this becomes a community that you get plugged into. Um, I had a big, well, long think about what I should preach from this week, and uh, I thought I'd take up the challenge to continue uh, the Mark series that Eddie, Pastor Eddie, was preaching from. Uh, I'm not the same caliber of preacher as Eddie was. Um, I hope to be one day, but uh, I thought I'd give it a shot. Uh, and so we're in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 29 to 39. Mark chapter 1, 29 to 39, uh, and I managed to find my old NIV Bible, so I'm actually making the transition over to the NIB, uh, NIV, not NIB. Uh, so Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 39, and the word of God reads, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her. Oh, helped her up, brother. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for Mark's gospel. We thank you for the faithfulness of your disciples uh, and your followers in recording the ministry and life of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, as we look at today's passage from Matthew, uh, Mark, rather, chapter 1, verses 29 to 39, we pray to be able to look at this topic of discipleship, uh, to not only draw out aspects of discipleship to become aware of, but Father, by the power of your Spirit, we pray that these aspects of discipleship would transform the way we do life and the way we walk with Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, I actually used to tune in to Pastor Eddie's sermons uh, even after he left Yongnak Church. Uh, I loved the way he preached. I loved the fact that after you'd hear a Pastor Eddie sermon, it would just leave you hungry for more of Jesus. And from memory, the last passage that he preached from was verses 21 to 28. Uh, and in that passage, Jesus is at a synagogue in Capernaum and he exercises a demon and two things uh, were revealed in that particular passage. The first 
was the authority by which Jesus preached. Uh, when it came to the scribes and preachers of that day, and it's the same with preachers today, uh, we're bound and limited with what we can preach. We're restricted to preaching within the boundaries of God's word, no more and no less. Even as I preach today, or any pastor should preach from a pulpit, they should never go beyond the authority of what God's word teaches. And the people of this day that heard the scribes and the rabbis preach, they were used to this kind of preaching, teachers and preachers that would preach within the realms of the Old Testament. And so when they heard Jesus, the Son of God, suddenly appear and preach, there was something very unique and different about the way Jesus taught. Because for the first time in history, they were hearing the God of the Word preach the Word of God. Now, the second thing that we noticed in that particular passage was the authority that Jesus demonstrated over demons. Uh, Pastor Eddie mentioned that the evil spirit that Jesus encountered in the preceding passage, it was a singular spirit, one, one demon. Yet, when the demon refers to himself, he uses plural pronouns. Verse 24, what do you want with us? Plural, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? Plural, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' authority extended not just over this one demon, but the entire kingdom of darkness. All of Satan's minions put together have no authority or power before the throne of Jesus. Now, back in the day, uh, I, I grew up in the era when Facebook first got introduced. That's how old I am. Uh, Facebook, I saw Facebook appear on the scene. And, um, and then I lived during a period before there was such a thing as memes, and I saw memes appear. Um, and there was a meme, I remember, back in the day of, um, of Satan and Jesus. And maybe you've seen it. It would be a picture of like, someone that's meant to represent Jesus and Satan. He'd have the horns, and they'd be having an arm wrestle. And there'd be a caption underneath that would say, share this if you think Jesus is going to win. Or something along those lines. Um, and I hated this meme. Oh, you just made me cringe seeing it because it's so biblically inaccurate. It made Jesus and Satan look like they were you know, locked in a head-to-head battle. Who's going to win? I don't know. But the reality, according to the authority of God's word, is that this isn't a head-to-head battle. It's not an even battle. It's not even a battle. It is domination because Jesus has already won the victory on the cross. Even at his weakest as he hung on the cross, the victory was won against the entire kingdom of darkness. Now, we see this kind of authority in the preceding passage. And in today's passage, uh, we'll be looking at verses 29 to 39. And I've entitled today's sermon, A Culture of Discipleship. Because as we unpackage today's passage, we're going to encounter uh, very fundamental elements of discipleship that really should shape the way any Christian should live life or walk with Jesus. Now, in terms of the time period or what, what, what day this passage is taking place on, uh, what you'll find if you read through the entire of Mark 1 is that the preceding passage and today's passage, it's both happening on the same day. It's happening on the Sabbath day, uh, which, according to the Jews, is on a Saturday. 
Um, and after the exorcism that Jesus performed in the preceding passage, verse 29 then say, states, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew, or Simon, Simon Peter. Um, and so together, you know, Jesus, together with James, John, Simon, who's Peter, and Andrew, um, who were all fishermen by trade, uh, they immediately head over to Peter's house, the apostle Peter's home. And given that this was all taking place on the Sabbath day, which is a day of what? A day of rest. Uh, we can actually assume that Peter's house was actually quite close to the synagogue uh, because the Jews who took their Sabbath laws very seriously, they had particular rules, like really weird, extreme rules regarding what constituted work. And one of them was actually walking long distances. If you were a Jew... During the New Testament, uh, you were not allowed to walk more than 1.2 kilometers. You go over 1.2 kilometers, you're working, and you've broken the Sabbath law. So we can assume that Peter's home was about, about 1.2, give or take a couple of meters, from the synagogue. Uh, and presumably, given that it wasn't dark yet, we can assume that uh, it was about lunchtime when they came to Peter's house. So you can kind of think they, they did a day of preaching and teaching at the synagogue, exercising demons and got a bit hungry. Let's go to Peter's house for lunch. And so they arrive at Peter's home and it gets brought to Jesus's attention uh, that Peter's mother-in-law, uh, meaning that Peter was married, uh, Peter's mother-in-law was actually sick with a fever, a fever. And then he proceeds to heal her in verse 31. And Jesus does this by taking Peter's mother-in-law, taking her hand and raising her up. Now, Matthew and Luke's gospel, uh, they record this same event, this same miracle in Matthew 8 and Luke 4. And it's interesting, whenever you see... Uh, synonymous events like this across multiple gospels you kind of put it together and it's almost like pieces of a puzzle to fill in the bigger picture of what happened all the details and Matthew's gospel for instance uh, notes that the healing occurred uh, when Jesus just touched her hand uh, Luke's gospel is slightly different uh, it says that the healing occurred uh, by Jesus rebuking the fever I don't know what that would have looked like. I don't know what it looks like to scold a fever. Like, how do you scold? Like, stop it. Like, don't do it anymore. Like, how do you scold a fever? But that's what Luke's gospel says. Um, and Luke's gospel also notes that it was a high fever. So it would have been, you know, she would have been bedridden for quite a few days. Now, presumably, the healing itself was a combination of all of these things because uh, they were witnessed by different people and recorded by different people. So it would have been a harmony of all these things uh, that made up this event. But irrespective of how the healing occurred, uh, one thing that we can conclude, even with all the different details, was that the fever left Peter's mother-in-law instantly. Uh, her body was restored and there were no after effects. It was an instant healing. Uh, I used to have a friend who's an extreme charismatic, and I remember he said to me, God told me, Jay, uh, I know you've got the flu, God told me to pray for you and you're going to be healed instantly. Uh, and he prayed for me, and it ended up being the longest flu I've ever had. I was sick for another two, three weeks. This wasn't like that. It was an instant healing. All the symptoms were gone instantly. Uh, earlier in the week, I know that Nathan just recovered from the coronavirus and uh, poor Andrew is home with the coronavirus. I had the coronavirus earlier this year whilst my wife was in holiday, on holidays in Korea. Uh, I was home alone with my dog. I was bedridden. 
in isolation. I had a massive fever. Uh, my wife was too busy enjoying herself. She didn't really seem to care. Um, but at some point, I, I just kept sleeping and sleeping. And at some point, I started to get better. And the fever eventually subsided. And I tested negative uh, when I did a rat test. But for anyone that's had a fever for any prolonged period of time, even though the fever is gone, your body is still in recovery mode. Because what happens, even though the fever is gone, your body still feels weak, doesn't it? You feel tired, you're still in bed, even though you don't have a fever, you don't want to get out of bed, you just want to like, lay there and just keep resting. But that doesn't seem to be the case here in today's passage doesn't seem to be the case with Peter's mother-in-law. It seems like an instant healing because what does Peter's mother-in-law do the moment that she's healed? It says in verse 31 that she began to wait on them like a waiter, serving them. The moment her body was fully restored, her immediate reaction, her default reaction was to get up and start serving these four fishermen disciples and Jesus Presumably, she would have made lunch for them, given that it was lunchtime. And uh, I love that she did this. Um, I love that her first reaction after having an encounter, a healing encounter with Jesus, was to recognize, I need to serve. I'm healed, and the purpose of my healing was to serve. The passage then continues from verses 32 to 34. It says that that evening... After sunset, the people, uh, the people of Capernaum, uh, they brought Jesus to all the sick, or rather, they brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Uh, the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now, um, in the preceding passage, after Jesus preaches at the synagogue and casts out demons, you find that the preceding passage ends with like all these news, like all this talk, and you know, everyone's talking about Jesus. Like this miracle preacher, this this demon exorcist, like he's, he's amazing. And news is spreading, rumors are spreading about Jesus, and you might be wondering why didn't they come looking for Jesus up until now? Like, if I saw someone that cast out a demon, that's the first place. That's the first person I'd want to go see. Who, who is this guy? Um, but these guys waited up until sunset. Um, and you might be wondering why. And the reason why was because the Sabbath hadn't actually ended yet. Uh, for the Jews, the Sabbath ended at sunset. So it would begin sunset on a Friday, and it would end sunset on a Saturday. And so um, the moment that the sun went down, marked the end of the Sabbath. They were no longer bound by these rules, like 1.2 kilometers, you can't walk more than that. Those rules, they were no longer bound by that. And so the whole town, it says the whole town, think of the entire of Greenacre coming to the footsteps of FLM Church. Like the whole town gathered to Peter's home and they were standing outside the door with all the sick, every sick person in Capernaum and everyone that was demon-possessed. They were at the door of Peter's home. Now, today's passage shows that Jesus had compassion. He cared about people. He loved people. And so he begins healing the unwell. He begins exercising demons and casting all these demons out. 
by the authority of who he was. And it's probably something that would have taken all night. Like an entire city of people, of unwell people. It would have taken all night. And he, he must have reached at some point a time when he finished everything. He finished exercising the demons, finished healing everyone. Uh, and he probably eventually went to sleep. Because verse 35 begins by implying that Jesus woke up. Uh, verse 35 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up or awoke. He left the house and went to a solitary place where he prayed. The healing and the exorcisms would have taken all night. Um, and Jesus, according to this passage, woke up very early. So he would have been running on very little sleep. He got up while it was still dark. And presumably he did this because he knew everyone would be sleeping. No one would be looking for him. Everyone would be sleeping and it would be an opportunity for him to go to a place of solitude. A place where he could be alone with God and pray. But then Peter and his friends must have woken up, noticed that Jesus was gone and they come looking for him. They probably sent out a search party and they find him. And verses 36 and 37 says, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Everyone. You know, the entire population of Capernaum that you, you met with yesterday, all of them are out here again. They're looking for you. And I think the disciples must have been excited about this. Uh, I think I would have been excited as a pastor. Uh, personally, if I saw the entire population of Greenacre outside the steps of the church wanting to participate in service, I think all the, you know, the, the pastor side of it, the cogs in my mind would be working. Okay, how can I leverage this opportunity? How can I get them plugged into the community of church? How can I get them to hear about Jesus? I think you know, my, my, my brain would have been brainstorming for ideas. How can I point them to God? But not Jesus. Jesus doesn't do that in this passage. Peter and his three friends have actually come up to Jesus and said, you know, the, the, the entire town of Capernaum, you've healed them, you, you've, you've cast out demons, they've seen this, they love you, Jesus, everyone is here looking for you. And I think Peter probably would have been frustrated by the response and reaction from Jesus. Because Peter's just said, everyone's looking for you. This is exciting. They're, they're all here for you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Verse 38. Let's go somewhere else. Let's go to a nearby village. Let's get away from Capernaum. Let's go to a nearby village so I can preach there also. That's why I've come, to preach. And the passage ends with Jesus doing exactly that. Verse 39 says that he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching from synagogue to synagogue, driving out demons. Uh, and that's how it ends, today's passage in verse 39. Now, um, I've entitled today's sermon, A Culture of Discipleship, uh, because there's very important aspects. It's fundamental aspects, but very important aspects of discipleship that we can draw from today's passage things that really should be primarily shaping the way we walk with Jesus and the way we walk with each other 
Fafalim, as brothers and sisters, the way we should be worshipping together. And as I share these practical aspects of discipleship with you, uh, I'm hoping that everyone, including myself, that will be very intentional uh, about taking these things away to shape not only our lives, but the culture of the way we do church, the culture of FLM for you guys. Because culture shapes the way we live our lives. Culture shapes our decisions and our thinking. And so I've labelled the, th the three points of my sermon as different types of cultures uh, that should form and come together to form a life of discipleship. And the first is a culture of God's word. Uh, I mentioned not too long ago that the disciples came looking for Jesus after he snuck away to be alone with the Father in prayer. And when the disciples come to find Jesus, they bring to his attention the fact that the entire town is looking for him. For the disciples, and I think even to myself, if I were in their shoes, this would have looked like an invaluable ministry opportunity. When else are you going to see something like this happen? It would have been an invaluable ministry opportunity. And to the disciples, it looked like the perfect time to strategize and brainstorm ideas on how we could leverage this opportunity. But Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. And we need to understand why Jesus said this. Because for the people of Capernaum, if you read the preceding passage, uh, you know that they weren't coming to see Jesus because of who he was. They had a skewed, a watered down and a limited understanding of who Jesus was. The people of Capernaum, they saw Jesus as a miracle worker. They saw him as a great preacher. And they saw him as an exorcist. But that's about as far as it went. Uh, it was a distorted, watered-down view of Jesus, and they sought Jesus because of what he could do for them, rather than because of who he was. Um, if you remember Pastor Eddie's first sermon, proof uh, I actually listened to all of Pastor Eddie's sermons, uh, Pastor Eddie's first sermon on Mark, he preached from the opening verse, uh, just that one verse, and he explained how Mark describes Jesus. At the beginning of this book, he describes Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's the Messiah that the prophet Isaiah spoke about in the Old Testament. He's the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He was with the Father in Genesis 1. He is the creator of the universe. He is worthy of all worship and all glory. But to the people of Capernaum, Jesus was nothing more than the son of Joseph, carpenter by trade, who could perform cool miracles. They had a limited, distorted view of Jesus. And the danger of having a watered-down view of Jesus is because this, you know, this is how idolatry begins. Having an incorrect understanding of who Jesus is is at the core of what idolatry is. And for Christians today... When we come to worship Jesus, it is imperative that we worship the Jesus as revealed in the Bible. Our understanding of who God is has to be shaped by the way God defines himself. It's not who we think God is or who we'd like God to be. 
Despite how popular and influential culture might be, we cannot allow our God to be defined and shaped by the culture of the world. Why? Because history alone has proven that culture changes every few years. Worldviews change every few years. Political views change every few years. But God reveals through his word key attributes about himself. One of them is that he is an unchanging God. He is an immutable God. On the front of this pulpit, it says Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He never changes. No matter how much time passes, he transcends time and he always remains unchanged. God is who he says he is, not who we'd like him to be. His character from Genesis 1 remains consistent till today, doesn't change. A lot of people, uh, you know, when you're in ministry, you go to different churches, people kind of look for your, your wife. They're like, Samonim. Oh, what, what does she look like? You know, and, you know, when I first came to Yongnak Presbyterian Church, they tried to make her feel welcome and, like, they asked, what kind of food does she like? What does she look like? What kind of stuff is she into? And I, I described her as best as I could. She's got long hair. I think she's quite pretty. Um, she doesn't like junk food. She likes expensive seafood. Um, but if my wife came to Yongnak or any church and people said to her, Jay described you as having short hair and he said that you were Australian and you loved McDonald's, I think I'd be in a lot of trouble because my wife would probably be like, who's this girl they're talking about? You can't change who God is. You can't redefine God. God either is as he defines himself in the scriptures or he's not God at all. And so to avoid the danger of worshipping a distorted God, which is no God, no God at all, it's imperative that we allow, allow our understanding of who God is to be shaped by what God says he is through his word, to encounter the Christ as revealed through the word. John says in the opening chapter of his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was what? Was God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Do you want to know God? Then encounter him through the word. This is the place to begin. And so one thing I encourage you to do at FLM is to create a culture that's centered on God's word. And what I mean by that, you know, I know it sounds easy to be about God's word. How do you do that? Uh, what I mean is don't be afraid of opening this book and reading it for yourself. I know some bits are hard to understand. That's why they call it Bible study, because you have to study it, because you might not know all the answers. But don't be afraid of opening this book and reading it for yourself. Don't be afraid of going up to a brother or a sister at church and saying, hey, you know what, we're going through a series on Mark. Do you mind if we just maybe once a week meet up at a cafe and read through a couple of chapters of Mark a week together? I heard you guys have two rooms in the building. I think it's behind the church. Hey, let's meet up there once a week. Let's buy some dinner, meet up there, and let's read Mark a couple of chapters a week together. Don't be afraid of having 
this mindset of being all about God's word. Strive to create a culture of God's word. Be a people of God's word. And if you have questions, you will have questions. I still have questions. Write it down. Makes for great Bible study and connect group discussions. So point number one, create a culture of God's word. Point number two, create a culture of prayer. Jesus, Mark reveals, is the Christ, the son of the living God. We know according to the scriptures that he is the spotless lamb of God without blemish. And he takes away the sin of the world. We know, according to the gospel, that Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He lived a life without sin. Perfect. I don't know if you've ever tried to live a sinless life. I tried one day, waking up many years ago when I first became a Christian. I'm going to try not to sin today. And I, I lasted about 20 minutes after I walked out. I was walking to the bus stop. And you know those people that like walk in front of you and just suddenly stop? You're like, come on. I didn't last very long. But Jesus, the one person that lived an entire life without sin, if there is anyone that you'd think didn't need to pray, it was Jesus. Yet in today's passage, it says that he went off into a solitary place. And the term for this solitary place in the, in the Greek, it literally translates to a wilderness or a desert, uh, which is interesting because if you ever look at the colorful maps in your Bible, you'll find that Capernaum uh, was anything but that. Uh, it was, it's like the equivalent of Bondi or Kuji here. Like it's, a, it's a seaside town. There's no deserts or wilderness nearby. If you think of Bondi, you don't think of desert. Yet Mark describes it as a desert, a solitary place that Jesus went to. And he does this, um, it's, it's like a, it has a symbolic purpose. Mark deliberately calls it a wilderness because to God's people, the wilderness represents a place where you either re-encounter God you have your relationship restored with God, or you have your faith tested, tempted, and strengthened even further at the end. It was a place that symbolized significance, a place to reconnect with God. Now, spending time alone with God, according to today's passage, must have been a source of strength for Jesus a means to recharge his batteries. Because remember that Jesus, as much as he was 100% God, Pastor Eddie explained in previous sermons that he was 100% man. That's what the incarnation represents. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that he became 100% man. Not 50%, 50%, not 60%, 40%, but 100% God, 100% man. This means that as God the man, Jesus experienced physical and spiritual exhaustion. He got tired. He got hungry. When Satan tempted him, you know, we, we gloss over that. Yeah, Satan tempted him, but he's God. No, he got tempted as God the man. And prayer was the means by which Jesus was able to recharge and re-energize himself. And it's the place where we will experience true spiritual restoration in the place of secret prayer. Through prayer, we're able to enjoy God's presence. We're able to speak with God. We're able to lay our burdens at his feet. But in addition to all that, 
Prayer is a means of putting our faith into action. Because what are you doing when you pray? You're learning to depend upon God. You're saying to God, I can't do this by my own strength, so I'm laying this at your feet. A praying people are a people who are learning to grow in their dependence upon God, which is what the gospel is all about, isn't it? It's learning to put your faith and trust 100% in the sovereignty of God. Prayer shows also our desire to live a life aligned to God's will, where instead of rushing into things headfirst, you know, trying to implement our plan, doing things our way, according to our timing, prayer gives us an opportunity to just stop for a moment, to lay it all out before God and ask him, what is your will? What does your kingdom desire? What is your kingdom need of me? Even with ministry, it's so easy to think, oh, this will work. Only for God to humble you and show you the way he wants things done. Prayer was important to the life and ministry of Christ. You find if you read through the Gospels, Jesus prays an incredible amount. And if it was important to Jesus, how much more should it be important for the followers of Jesus? if we're serious about desiring to be like him. And so I encourage everyone at FLM to try and create a culture of prayer. When you wake up each morning, even if you've got like crusty stuff around your eyes, you haven't washed yet, just start the day in prayer. Even if you feel disgusting, you've got bad breath, just as soon as you open your eyes, just open your eyes and say, God, I want to commit this day to you. Doesn't need to look pretty. You don't need to look pretty. But even if you start with something like that, it changes the way you walk with Jesus. Create a culture where praying for each other is normal. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I come from a conservative Prezi church where it's like you don't really show too much emotion. Even when we worship, it's like your hands are just fire at your side. You don't even clap. It's just like, I'm a Prezi. I'm a faithful Prezi. I'm just going to stand here. But it's weird if you think about it. Um, We should be an emotional people. We should be praying for each other. If a brother or sister comes up to you and shares their week and it's like, I had a bit of a rough week, it should be normal for us to say, do you mind if I pray for you about that? If anything, if it feels weird, that in itself should be weird, shouldn't it? For the follower of God's people who know that when we lift someone up in prayer, we're lifting that person up to the God, the creator of the universe. Shouldn't it be weird that it's weird to pray for them? It should be a default norm according, you know, if we're going to walk with Jesus, be like Jesus. Prayer should be the default reaction when we relate to people, when we share in our troubles with other people. We're praying to the living creator of the universe, the risen king. And it should be a privilege to create a culture of prayer. We should be all about prayer. Third point, creating a culture of service. This is the final point. Uh, We saw in the earlier part of today's passage that Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. Uh, She was bedridden and it was a massive fever For a prolonged period of time, uh, it would have been taxing on her body, both physically and mentally. Uh, And like I mentioned, if 
anyone's caught the coronavirus, you know that even after you test negative and you've, you're not contagious anymore, you still feel really yucky. It's like, ugh, I don't feel like doing anything. just want to stay in bed for a few more days. And yet, for Peter's mother-in-law, the moment she has her encounter with Jesus, the moment he takes her hand, lifts her up, and is healed, what's the first thing that she does? She gets up and she begins serving. Seems like such a, a menial thing to cook for someone. But what Peter's mother-in-law demonstrates is a critical aspect of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Even though the passage doesn't mention her by name, we would do well to emulate Peter's mother-in-law because what she's doing in essence is imitating Christ, who is the ultimate servant. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8 in describing Jesus, he says to the Philippian church, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God himself, did not, did not count equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on what? Taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, sometimes when we think of serving, uh, we, we have a, especially if you grew up in a Korean church, you have a very limited understanding of what serving should look like. Uh, we've been trained to believe that serving means becoming a leader in a church or becoming a Sunday school teacher in JITA or HMX or one of the other Sunday school ministries. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. I encourage everyone to serve. But serving at the end of the day, it's a demonstration of sacrificial love to God and to your neighbor. And this kind of demonstration of sacrificial love can actually take on many forms. I, I, I've met Christians that found out that they had a mutual friend whose, whose husband had left her and she had, I think, a two-year-old baby and I remember I was blown away uh, by their act of sacrificial love to this unbelieving friend. She wasn't a Christian. And they actually took turns babysitting and getting people from the church to take turns babysitting for the baby whilst the mother had to go to work. It became a tangible expression of love to this particular single mother. If someone contracts COVID, I was blessed at my church when I contracted COVID. My wife abandoned me. She was partying in Korea. Um, I had people from church found out, or find out Jay's got COVID. And I, I was actually worried, what, what am I going to do? How am I, I've got no food in the home. I can't leave my home. I can't order pizza every day. I'm, like My wife's been complaining about my weight. And I had people from church, people I didn't even know, just rocking up and dropping food off on my front door. It should be proactively finding the needs of your local community. Even for FLM, members of FLM, even if you're not a leader, maybe you could look at the suburb of Greenacre and find a practical need. Bring that need to your FLM leaders and say, hey, there is a need in this community and it'd be so awesome if FLM could work together, mobilise and feel that need in the name of Jesus. 
Because serving doesn't have to be done individually either. God grants everyone different spiritual gifts and you can bring those together to work as a team to demonstrate acts of sacrificial love. And what's really awesome about being able to serve other people is that sacrificial demonstrations of love allow strong relationships to be built that otherwise might not be possible. And once these bonds are created, then it becomes easier to point them to the love of Jesus because they've already seen it in action through your acts of service, haven't they? That single mother, it wasn't a foreign concept when the gospel was shared with her because she'd already seen sacrificial, selfless acts of love when her friends babysat her baby child. If you have an unbelieving friend that you've always wanted to witness to, maybe a verbal gospel presentation is not the best initial approach. But if you spend time demonstrating sacrificial acts of love through service, you can create a bond that doesn't make your gospel presentation look cheap, but authentic, genuine, and tangible. So those are the three things that I want to share with you guys, in part to you guys through today's passage. Three aspects of culture. I hope FLM becomes a, a people that, you know, their culture uh, is all about God's word, that they create a culture of prayer, and that they create a culture of service. And so uh, on that note, uh, why don't we enter into a time of prayer? Uh, I don't know uh, where you're at in your walk with Jesus. I don't know what your uh, re- relationships are like with the unbelieving friends in your life. Uh, but at least beginning with FLM, let's pray uh, for all of us, for your brothers and sisters around you, that you would come collectively through the authority of today's passage, that we would work together to create a culture, a strengthened culture that builds upon God's word, that makes prayer a normal aspect of walking with Jesus, and that FLM becomes a ministry where even the world defines them as a, as a ministry that serves and loves. So let's pray for FLM ministry in, in this time, that we become uh, a ministry about the word, a ministry about prayer, a ministry about service. Uh, and once we're done praying, I'll wrap up. Let's pray.
Father, we pray uh, at FLM uh, and Christians everywhere that we would be a people of the word, a people of prayer and a people of service. That through the word that we would encounter the risen son as revealed through your word, that we would worship God as, as you define yourself. That we would be a people of prayer that lifts each brother and sister up to the King. We pray for a culture that wouldn't make prayer a foreign concept or something weird, but the norm in what defines our relationship with each other. And Father, lastly, we pray for the church to be a people of service, that in desiring to be like Christ, that we would be a people that constantly demonstrate acts of sacrificial love, not just to each other, but to the unbelieving world, and that this in turn would create gospel opportunities so that more and more would be able to see the God of Scripture that we worship from day to day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.